let's get strapped in this morning. I've got about two weeks of preaching to catch up on. I hope that you're ready. We're going to be in Judges chapter 9. We're going to go all the way through, I think it's 57 verses, uh, up through chapter 10, verse 5. So a chapter and then a little bit of chapter 10. We're going to be in Judges chapter 9. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, you can use one of our few Bibles there. And you'll find it on page, I think it's around 170 or in that region. You're going to notice large numbers and small numbers. The large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers so that you can follow along with us there. Uh, I'm not going to be reading every verse this morning. Uh, so as I talk about what's kind of going on in the text, you can glance down and read if you ever find yourself confused or going, what is he talking about? Uh, and if you continue to find yourself going, what is he talking about? Uh, you can just read God's word there and, and meet with him there this morning. And, uh, and that should be sufficient, probably more sufficient uh, than myself. As we've worked through Judges, we've become familiar with this cycle that's gone on, right? The people sin, the people are oppressed, the people cry out. God raises up a judge, savior, and gives them deliverance. He gives the people victory, and then there's peace in the land. But now in chapter 9, after the death of Gideon, we're going to depart from that cycle a little bit. We're going to walk into what is a horrendous and awful portion of Judges. And at the center of the stage, we're going to find Gideon's son. You'll remember he was named my father, the king, even though Gideon wasn't really a king. He just acted like one. Abimelech will become a king. Yes, Abimelech is the son of Gideon's concubine, which means that he was kind of illegitimate somewhat, and he didn't stand to inherit. And so from his birth, he was a little bit of an outsider, even in his own family. As the story unfolds, we're going to come face to face with a man that thinks he has to take hold of whatever life is going to give him. Whatever he wants, he's going to have to get for himself. And he'll do so by any means necessary. The scene of most of the action that's going to take place this morning is also important. As Gettysburg Gettysburg and Montgomery are places of great historical and national significance for Americans, so Shechem was a place of huge importance for Israel. It was a place where God appeared to Abraham to tell him that this was the land he had promised to give him. And so it was the first place in in the promised land to have an altar built to it in worship of the Lord. It was also the first place where Abraham's descendants gathered to worship the Lord after they'd crossed into the land under Joshua. Historically, then, it's the spiritual center and maybe kind of like a thermometer, thermostat of Israel. What happens in Shechem, in Judges 9, in our chapter this morning, would be similar to Americans deciding to reinstitute slavery at a meeting in Gettysburg or racial segregation at Montgomery. The scene is important. This morning we're going to divide uh, our uh, text into five different sections. Abimelech's rise to power, the boy who lived, fire from the bramble, and that's verses 22 through 55, the largest section, And then uh, in verses 56 and 57, as well as we're going to treat verses 23 and 24 here, we're going to have the curtain pulled back for us. And then we're going to look at saving Israel in the first five verses of chapter 10. I'm going to exhort you this morning to value what God values, to listen to wise words, to guard your speech, to trust God's justice, and to turn from yourself to Christ. Before we do all that, though, and before we start dealing with the text in turn, uh, would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your loving kindness. It's a kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for giving us your word in the Bible. We thank you that your word is living and active and that it speaks truth to us that's not bound by time or culture. But it's a truth that speaks to us today, that's authoritative for us today. Make us obedient to it. Help us to submit our hearts gladly to it. Let us find joy in walking according to your authoritative voice. Let us hear it this morning. And be reminded once again of your glorious gospel of grace. Amen. So in verses 1 through 6, we see Abimelech and we see a bit of his character of the one who will do whatever it takes to grab hold of power, to grab hold of what he wants. He, like Gideon before him, if you remember in chapter 8 a few weeks back, is seeking his own agenda. But unlike Gideon, he's not called by God to be a leader. Abimelech appoints himself as a leader, to be king, in fact. Gideon played at being king, but Abimelech would make himself one. He does so by making use of gossip. He whispers in the ears of the leaders of Shechem and of his relatives. And he makes two arguments to him that appeal uh, to the intelligence and to the pride of the city. The first argument is that the rule of one man is preferable to the rule of 70. After all, he had 70 brothers And secondly, he says the rule of a relative is preferable to the rule of outsiders. You see, because he was the only son of a concubine, he had a little bit of their blood in him. So he's saying, isn't it better to be ruled by somebody that's like you and only one man than 70 others who aren't like you? He highlights his own qualifications by characterizing himself as their own bone and their own flesh. It's an argument from ethnicity. We see his plan work, and in verse 4, the leaders of Shechem give him what he needs to establish himself as their king. Seventy pieces of silver. Silver to hire hitmen. Silver to kill his brothers. Abimelech removes anything that stands in his way, even his family. He kills them. It's a calculated, brutal act of murder. It's not a quick slaughter of unsuspecting victims. No, all of them are killed upon one stone. It's a methodical execution of the family of Gideon. His father had killed fellow Israelites in chapter 8 in his lust for power. And now Abimelech, in his own lust for power, kills his own brothers and sisters like father, like son. I think this shows us a a few things, uh, one of which uh, I think is in the importance of the example that we set to others, and especially for our children. And thinking about this section, uh, I had a country song come into my mind, so if you'll humor me, uh, I'm going to read you some lyrics from a, a Rodney Atkins song. They go a little bit like this. A green traffic light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries, that's his son, went a-flying and his orange drink covered his lap. Then my four-year-old said a four-letter word that started with S, and I was concerned. So I said, now, where did you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. 
We've got cowboy boots and camo pants. We're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do. So I have been watching you. The picture that this song paints reveals to us how our children and others watch us. It's just that children are much more likely to imitate us quickly and explicitly. The point I want to make here is that as parents, as Christians, we are to set an example of godly living. And that our lives are to be patterned after Jesus. The example that we set matters. People see it and they follow after us. What kind of example are you setting? Is your life patterned after Jesus? Next in verse 6, we're told that Abimelech is made king. Officially. Here we have, I think, a lesson for choosing our leaders. Tim Keller points out for us, we are far too often impressed by qualities that are unimportant to God. Further, we can far too easily be swayed by pragmatic arguments. God does not prize popularity or humor or academic intelligence or being an extrovert and so on. He seeks men who hold to his truth to seek to lead their families rightly are patient and self-controlled. He does not want well-mannered, well-dressed 21st century equivalents of Abimelech. Chosen for the wrong reasons and for the wrong qualities. Our leaders should not be those that are continually promoting themselves. Grasping after power and slandering others. Spreading gossip, doing whatever it takes. But those that embody a Philippians 2 mindset. Those that consider others more significant than themselves. Those that have the mind of Christ Jesus. Those that humble themselves in submission to God's will. This makes me think how differently the world views leadership than us. How in order to gain power, you have to build yourself up in most cases. I mean, just take a look at our political elections. How many ridiculous commercials have you seen where one opponent slanders another? I mean, sometimes they get really out there, and most of the time I don't think they're true. I think I've even seen one that's like, don't vote for so-and-so, like he hates puppies and kitty cats and rainbows. Like, I don't even know if that's true, but it doesn't matter. Because it's about building yourself up and making yourself look more desirable than the other candidate a lot of the times. That's not how we should choose our leader. Not by who looks the coolest or dresses the nicest or is the funniest. But the one who walks in truth and in kindness. The one who values the things that God values. The one that is like Jesus. We must learn to value what God values. How do you think we're doing at that? How are we at choosing our leaders? What is it that you find yourself impressed about with in others? What impresses you? How are you leading others? Are you leading people to be more like Jesus? Or more like the world? Are you building others up, strengthening them? Or are you tearing others down to make yourself look good? Do you have a Philippians 2 mindset? Or an Abimelech mindset? Concerned with the spiritual development of others? And the work of the gospel? Or are you just doing whatever it takes to get your way? Abimelech had managed to kill all 70 of his brothers. 
all but one, that is. The boy who lived. Jotham. Verse 7 changes the scene to a mountain where Jotham stands and proclaims a prophetic word to Shechem and to its new king. Block notes. Since he is the only survivor of a family murdered by his half-brother, he cannot enter the city to make his point. Therefore, he must speak from a mountainside outside of the city and must flee for his life as soon as he is through with his speech. Precisely because he has no power politically, he chooses a powerful rhetorical device, the fable. A fable typically involves a a short narrative in, in poetry or prose that teaches a moral lesson. It involves creatures like plants and inanimate objects that uh, speak and behave like human characters. And it is exactly what we're going to see here. Jotham tells this story in verse 8. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance, which uh, benefits gods and men, by which they're honored, and go and hold sway over the trees? So the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. And the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. Brambles like a thorn bush, if you don't know. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. The first three candidates for king here are three different trees, which are the most prized species of domestic plants in ancient Palestine. The olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine. When approached, each plant declines the offer of the kingship. Because it's too busy with being productive, too busy with serving society, too busy with serving others to be bothered with this seemingly trivial office of kingship. So finally, in verse 14, all the trees ask, not a tree, but a thorn bush to be their king. Now, if you're familiar with thorn bushes, you know that they're not at all valuable plants. Uh, They're too short and too kind of shaggy to provide any shade at all. And often they catch fire from the heat. And then it would spread to the surrounding foliage and destroy the more valuable plants. See, the thorn bush knows this and he invites the other trees to take refuge in his shade. If in good faith they've made them king. The image of the trees seeking cover uh, beneath a thorn bush is actually really, really funny. It's really absurd. uh, And it's supposed to be, right? Can you imagine trees trying to get underneath a thorn bush? It's funny. But there's never shade under a thorn bush. They're simply thorns. And the thorn bush, in in case the trees are playing games with him, in case they're just joshing him, kind of makes this pronouncement. He says, if you haven't in good integrity, in good faith, made me your king, then allow fire to come out from me and consume you. So what's the point, right? Trees, thorn bush, great. Great story. Well, Jotham explains in verses 16 through 20 and I'm going to paraphrase here. Uh, Essentially, he says, if you've been fair to Gideon's family in making Abimelech your king, Abimelech's the thorn bush, and let's face it, you haven't, but if you have in good faith, then may you find the greatest blessing in the rule of King Abimelech. But if you haven't, 
and let's face it, you haven't, then I hope that you and he get what you both deserve. That you get burned by him. That he gets burned by you. See, Gideon had saved Israel and Shechem from the Midianites. And the betrayal of Shechem is despicable. I mean, the man that had delivered them from the oppression, they take 70 of his sons and kill them. Execution style. They funded Abimelech's murderous rampage. That's where Abimelech got the silver, was from Shechem. Therefore, Jotham finds them equally guilty. He makes this pronouncement to them to kind of go back on what they've done. It's an opportunity for them to repent. But his words, as we'll see, fall on deaf ears. This also reminds me that it's often hard to hear truth uh, when somebody's speaking to it. When you mess up and somebody tells you, hey, guess what, you've messed up and here's why, uh, it's really, really difficult. But it's always, almost always necessary. If we don't listen to words of wisdom, we will continue in our folly. This makes me, this always reminds me of the same illustration, and maybe I've used it here before. I hope not. I just can't remember. But when I was in high school, I used to use a lot of four-letter words. Cursed a lot. Now, I'm not going to go into the ethics of, of language, but uh, long story short, I think that uh, in this case, uh, and in our country, uh, that that type of language reflects poorly on me and on my witness to Jesus Christ. Reflects poorly on the gospel. So myself and uh, my friend uh, Matt, who's been here to preach before, uh, we decided to hold one another accountable for our speech. It's pretty hard. And almost every time a not-so-nice word would slip out from my lips, he was there to let me know. Hey, bro, shouldn't have done that. And, you know, typically I just said, well, thank you for pointing out my sin. Allow me to repent before you and before God, who my sin is mostly against. No, that's not what happened. Typically, I would be like, well, let me just use a lot more explicit language, right? A lot more of those words would start tumbling out of my mouth because my pride would be offended. His rebuke, which I had asked for and I'm thankful for to this day, often made me very angry instead of leading me to repentance. It's because it's hard to be confronted with your sin. It's hard, but it's necessary. No one likes to be wrong or to have their sin pointed out to them. But that's how accountability works, friends. That's how we become more like Jesus Christ. That's how we spur one another on towards good deeds and love. That's how we bear one another's burdens. So let me ask you, who are you accountable to? I want to challenge you this week to think of a sin that you struggle with. And if you don't think, if you think to yourself, I don't struggle with any sin, I'm pretty good. Um, You're just blind to it. You're walking in ignorance and you haven't thought deeply enough about it. Think about it this week. Think about what sin you're struggling with. An area of your life that's not patterned after Jesus. And find a person. You don't have to find more than one person. Just one person, not hard. Somebody you trust. Get with them and say, hey, I want you to hold me accountable to this. And I want you to call me once a week and ask how I'm doing with it. And ask hard questions. And I'll do the same for you. And in doing so, we can become more like Jesus. We can become obedient to Galatians 6 and bear one another's burdens. So I want you to think about who you're accountable to and what you need to be held accountable for. What is God going to tell you through someone else? I want you to hear them. 
wants you to listen to wise words. Shechem and Abimelech, however, pay no attention to Jotham's words, no attention to his fable. And the fire of judgment soon consumes both. We see the fire start in verse 25. The leaders of Shechem begin to rebel against Abimelech by adopting a strategy uh, that employs highway robbers, and they set ambushes against Abimelech and his people on the hilltops. And they rob all who go up and down on the roads in the vicinity of the city. Alongside this small rebellion of highwaymen rises up Gaal, son of Evid. He moves into Shechem, and he begins to gain support of the town's leaders. This leads to a large party to celebrate the shifting loyalties of the people of Shechem. They go into the temple of their false god. They eat, drink, they're merry, and they revile Abimelech. It's at this point that Gaal, perhaps a little drunken, begins to argue that he, not Abimelech, should be king. Saying, who is Abimelech and why should we serve him? tell you what, if I were in charge, if this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to him, hey, let's throw down right now. Let's fight. I would take him and his army out. The irony here is just simply wonderful. This guy is using the same arguments that Abimelech used in the same temple, right? He's saying, look, Abimelech's kind of like you, but I'm more like you. He's a half-blood. I'm a pure blood." What right does Abimelech have to lead us? And as he's going on and on about how awesome he is and how he should lead the people, there's a city leader there that catches wind of this. Zebul. Zebul just happens to be appointed by King Abimelech. So he takes note of the festivities and he sends a secret message to Abimelech. He tells him what's going on. And he says, hey, this is what's going on. There's a small rebellion. Why don't you come down and we'll put an end to this. So Abimelech and his men go out by night and they surround the city. They set an ambush in a field. And as Gaal comes out the city the next day with Zebul, he sees the king and his army, but it's early, right? So the the, the shadows are doing kind of funky things. It's a mountainous region. He says, oh my goodness, look at all these men that are coming down from the mountainside. And Zebul says, listen, it's just early. You haven't had your coffee yet. It's It's not men. It's just a shadow of the mountain. Come on. But as the daylight rises, it becomes clear that it is not the shadow. But it is indeed Abimelech and his men. And Gaul turns to Zebul and says, it is men. And Zebul kind of looks at him and says, where is your mouth now? Where are your words now? Aren't you all talk how you're going to take out Abimelech? Here, I provided you with an opportunity to put your money where your mouth is. Go out and fight. It's time to throw down. I think this is a classic foot-in-mouth situation, right? I feel bad for this guy, Gaal. Perhaps he meant his words. Perhaps he just spoke them in a, in a drunken stupor because he had a moment of extreme stupidity. I, I don't know. But I think that we can learn from him how important our words can be and how destructive they can be. I mean, can you relate? Have you ever said something really, really foolish or found yourself like as the words are coming out of your mouth trying to grab them and shove them back in and push them down? there's somebody this morning that you've wronged with your words you need to seek forgiveness from it's important that our speech be seasoned with salt the salt of the gospel with love and grace 
with whatever is lovely, whatever is pure. Friends, I exhort you to guard your speech, to watch over your heart for folly. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words will reveal what's inside of you. Guard your speech. Abimelech and his men run the city to the ground. And they kill its people. The place where Abraham had worshipped the Lord and where Joshua and the people had worshipped him ends up barren, salt scattered. Scattered over its fields so that they can no longer bear crops. This is devastating. Abimelech is he's not done though. A thousand of the men of Shechem still take refuge in their idol's tower. Abimelech and his men, uh, they go and they cut some brushwood and they lay it against the stronghold of the tower. And they set it ablaze on fire. They burn it to the ground, killing everyone inside. It's here that we should remember Jotham's words earlier on. As he had predicted in his fable, fire had burst forth from the king, that is the thorn bush, and consumed the cedars, that is the leaders of Shechem. Abimelech's triumph is complete. All his rivals and his siblings and the Shechemites had been eliminated. However, his anger is not satisfied. And so he goes on to a new city and he captures it. And once again, many men and women and the town's leaders are held up in a strong tower of refuge. And Abimelech and his men are like, hey, we've seen this show before. We know how to deal with this. They go to cut some brushwood down and they are going to lay it against the tower and burn it to the ground. But there is a wrinkle in the story. As Abimelech is setting his, uh, his, his uh, I'm sorry, brush against the tower to set it afire, afire verse 53 a woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to a young man, his arm bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And this young man thrust him through and he died. I love verse 55. It's so anticlimactic. When the men of Israel saw Abimelech was dead, everybody went home. Love it. Then we can see in Abimelech's life that if you're building the meaning of your life on how much power you have or anything other than Christ, it's ultimately going to destroy you because you can never get enough of it. If you're living to please people, you can never get enough affirmation. If you're living for power, you can never grab hold of enough power to make yourself content. There's always unease, always unrest. Indeed, our restless hearts only find rest in Christ. Abimelech's quest for power becomes his ruin, becomes his judgment. Now, some of you saw that I skipped verses 23 and 24 and thought, that snake, he skipped over the hard part of this text. I didn't. We're coming back to it. In verses 23 and 24, as well as verses 56 and 57, I treat them together here because they share the same theme. The author of the narrative pulls back the curtain so that we can see what's going on. God seems so silent, so absent from this text. But even though he may have been silent, he was not absent. In what seems like a natural course of events, God's invisible hand is acting in judgment. There's no lightning bolt from heaven but there is justice. 
Verses 23 and 24 reveal the first part of this justice in action. Verse 23. And God sent, not gone, God, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Now, some of y'all's eyebrows probably went up there, right? God sending an evil spirit. This is uh, doing something to our theodicy a little bit. This is a little bit of an unfortunate translation, but it's still a right translation. The words in Hebrew are ruach ra'ah. simply means evil spirit. That's how it comes across. But I think Bloch does a good job of explaining this to us. He says, to understand the meaning of the phrase ruach ra'ah, two considerations must be borne in mind. First, the Hebrew word for evil can have two meanings. Moral malignancy, that's just straight up evil doing mean things. Or experiential misfortune, bad circumstances. And that, it's, it's analogous to the English word ill, which refers primarily to moral evil and secondarily to unpropitious conditions. In context like this, the word is not to be interpreted in a moral sense, as if the Spirit of God is morally defective or morally evil, but in a normal, profane sense, bad, as opposed to good. Second, in each of the four contexts in which some variation of the phrase takes place, the phrase ruach ra'ah, the Spirit is producing negative and destructive effects upon the object that is unpropitious conditions. The verb to send puts this ruach, this spirit, in a category with other calamitous agents sent out by Yahweh. It's God. For example, fire, plague, bloodshed, wild beast, the sword, and famine. Hopefully that was helpful. Maybe not. Maybe um, more simply. Uh, basically, God is judging them. And his spirit is the agent that carries out this judgment. It brings about these bad conditions. It can also be illustrated with something like the death penalty in our own culture, right? It's wrong to kill somebody, right? But if somebody's judged guilty and they're worthy of the death penalty, it's in fact just to kill that person the just judgment. So I talked to my buddy Matt about this. Uh, he, he came up with a pretty good example, I thought. Uh, current cancer research, right? Scientists use harmful viruses to target and kill cancer cells. And they do this by injecting viruses with chemosensitive detectors. The viruses then are introduced into the human body and they target the cancer. And when the chemo is applied, only the cancer cells that are infected by the virus are destroyed. Now, we wouldn't call these scientists' moral behavior evil. If anything, we're going to call it benevolent and good. I think we can say the same about God here. He uses the agent of his spirit to destroy a cancerous leader and an idolatrous people. Verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return upon their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. That's Gideon. 
Indeed, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being, being, that's present active participle, it's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Keller points out that God's judgment is not only reserved for a future day, it's a present reality. He then goes on to highlight three truths that we can learn about God's present judgment. First is that it often comes unseen. The people at this time where God's spirit is stirring up strife, it's working out God's judgment on the people, they can't see it, right? In our day, we have no divinely inspired author to kind of peel back the curtain and show us what God is doing, to tell us where he is working and how he is judging people. Yeah, we know there's judgments going on currently and presently, but we can never point to a specific event and go, See, that happened because God is judging those people. We just simply don't know. We can't say that God is making a judgment for this or that particular sin. But we do know that his judgment is active and present. Also, in this particular text, we see that God's judgment comes after a wait. Jotham waited three long years for his fable to become true. He had to learn patience and trust. And often we have to learn patience and trust as we wait upon Jesus Christ to set everything right upon his return. Often, judgment also comes through the outworking of human sin. Shechem is destroyed because of its disloyalty, ultimately. Its greatest sin was its downfall. Abimelech is destroyed because of his desire to maintain his position at any human cost. He had no need to attack the second city. His greatest sin was also his downfall. God, in his judgment, his right judgment, uses tools of human rebellion against those who rebel. God, in his judgment, uses tools of human rebellion against those who rebel. So in our rebellion against God, in our sin, we actually bring judgment upon ourselves. Our sin leads to our own destruction. I think the application here is to trust God's justice. We can trust God to be just. After all, Jesus is just and justifier. We can know with certainty that all that he is not justified, all that are outside of Christ, will face God's justice. Indeed, all sin has been punished in Jesus Christ on the cross or will be punished upon his return. No one escapes judgment. The judgment is fair and right. Turn your attention quickly with me to chapter 10, the first five verses. Here Israel seems to be at an all-time low, but this is not the end of the story. Verse 1, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and he was buried at Shamir. After him there arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. All the 30s are just to show you that it was very prosperous. It was a prosperous thing. Called Havath Jar, J-R, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And there he died and was buried in Kamon. Despite the fact that the people of God had completely abandoned him, completely become like those that surrounded them, Instead of being a light to the nations, they become like the nation's darkness. 
They hadn't even cried out in repentance to God. Despite all this, God sends Tola and Jair as the judge saviors they're not asking for. Notice in verse 1, no enemy is named, right? No enemy is named, yet Tola arises to save Israel. Who did he save them from then? Themselves. Keller writes, God's people ultimately need a leader who will rescue us from ourselves, from the failing and ambitions of our own hearts, and from the divisions and strife among us. This is a great reminder that the church's greatest problem is the church. It's also an encouragement that when we see churches with godly, humble leadership, with gospel-centered unity, which enjoy, pursue, and share peace with justice and love, we, unlike Gideon and Abimelech, must give thanks to the God who has, in his grace, given us the spirit to transform our hearts and our minds and restore our relationship with him. We need saved from sin. We need saved from ourselves. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is how we should all view ourselves. It's the foremost of sinners in need of saving. Abimelech betrayed and murdered his brothers with 70 pieces of silver. And in the Gospels, we see Judas betray and give Jesus over to his murderers for 30 pieces of silver. We too have betrayed God with silver. Yet our silver is the color of scarlet. It's the color of our sin, of our lust for power of our desire to define ourselves, to build the meaning of our lives on something aside from Jesus, of our gossiping, of our slandering against others, of our pride, of our self-focus. It's the color of our unbelief. We too need the judge savior that we do not ask for apart from the gracious act of God's spirit. The judge savior that we didn't ask for, but was sent. We need Jesus. We need the cross where God's just judgment is poured out upon Jesus Christ, our justifier. We need to know the one that knew no sin, but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we might know God, love God, obey God, and glorify God by enjoying him forever. Let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Are you really walking with Jesus Christ? Is he real to you? Is he your ever-present help in times of need? Is he your friend? Do you have communion with him during the week? Or do you just come on Sunday and then go about your business? Is the gospel real in your life? Is it permeating every aspect of your being? Is Jesus your life? Or is he just another part of it? Just another book on the shelf? I'm telling you, he has to be the whole shelf. Exhort you this morning, turn 
from yourself to Jesus. Jesus. 